This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Greetings, fellow investors. I'm Matthew Cochran, a lead advisor at 7investing, where it is our mission to empower you to invest in your future. We do that by providing monthly stock recommendations to our premium members and educational content that is freely available to everyone. Listeners, today I am very excited to introduce Will Thompson, the founder and managing partner of Massive Capital. Will has a fascinating journey that took him from Afghanistan to Lloyd's of London before founding Massive Capital. Massive Capital Real Asset Strategy is a global long-short equity strategy built around bottom-up stock picking. They are focused on creating a portfolio of businesses from within the energy, basic materials, and industrial sectors that balance the environmental and economic realities of achieving a carbon-neutral economy. As regular listeners know, uh, this is an area where I'm a little out of my depth, so I'm excited to learn more. And Will, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Of course. Will, why don't you just share with us briefly, I kind of alluded to it in our introduction, but just share with us your, your background and how you came to found Massive Capital and, and what you what you do there. Yeah. Um, so I think, uh, I guess there, there are sort of three formative events, if you will, almost in my life that brought me to this point. Um, so I, I was lucky enough to... Uh, have a, a family uh, that worked in finance and had some strong relationships on Wall Street. So I, I got my first job on Wall Street at 16 uh, as a summer intern working for Bank of America's healthcare uh, equity research group. So I've spent basically my entire career in finance, um, almost, you know, my entire formative life in finance in some way, shape or form. Um, but uh, went to grad school and at grad school, I wrote a paper that looked at Afghanistan. Uh, I, I didn't go back and get an MBA. I had a choice. You know, it was 2008, 2009. Everybody was going back to get MBAs. I made a decision to go off and do something else because it sort of seemed like if everyone's getting MBAs, I should do something else. Um, uh, ended up in Afghanistan as a result of that paper that I wrote. Um, and it was quite, it was quite a fascinating experience because you go over to, you go over to places like Afghanistan and now we invest globally. I, I go to places, uh, I go all over the place, uh, all over Latin America, Africa, et cetera. So go to a lot of these sort of developing countries. And one of the things you see right away is um, just sort of look at the environment and, and some environments clearly lend themselves to development and other environments don't lend themselves to development very well. Um, and Afghanistan is not an environment that lends itself to development. 
Uh, it's uh, they've got resources, but monetizing them is very difficult. Um, and I think equally important, there's a bit of a feedback loop between development and the environment where, uh, you know, our development has an impact on it. Um, and sometimes that impact can be positive. Sometimes it can be negative. Sometimes it's negative, but we have to accept the fact that it's negative because there's a, a greater good that's created. Afghanistan is one of those countries where it, it really crystallized to me that, um, you know, some environments are favorable for development and growth and some environments aren't. Um, and we want to do the best we can to make sure that the environment we have sort of writ large is a good one for development. Um, Came home from Afghanistan, worked at Lloyd's of London, uh, actually starting up a, a New York office for a Lloyd's of London insurance syndicate and focused on writing political and credit risk insurance policies, mostly for commodity traders, uh, project finance for banks, things like that. So a commodity trader, Glencore, would come to us and say, we want to buy $100 million worth of copper over five years will you write us an insurance policy if on any given year they don't deliver that copper to us? Sure, we'll write you an insurance policy. Mm -hmm. um, challenge with that is that, uh, of course, you know, insurance, if, if everything goes right, you make the premium, but you don't get any additional upside. If it goes wrong, and in the case of political and credit risk insurance policies, the asymmetries are, are quite nasty, Right, so that that Goldman, uh, uh, Glencore example I gave, hundred million dollars worth of copper, twenty per twenty million a year, that policy, you know, I don't know, would have been two percent per annum. So obviously, if it goes wrong, I've wiped out a lot, right, right, a lot of my uh, my my premium. So um, I loved the industries that we worked in: industrials, materials, energy. Um, they were my focus in grad school when I looked at, I studied political risk for, for natural resources development. Um, in Afghanistan, I worked on natural resources laws in Afghanistan. Um, so, you know, businesses that I loved, but that asymmetry, that uh, sort of negative asymmetry, if you will, and the inability to benefit from uh, things go working out, um, sort of... Uh, was a bit of a drag, uh, especially given if you run a clean insurance book, that almost by definition means that everything worked out. And sure, it right. worked out, but I didn't get any additional benefit. Um, so I started Massive Capital after going around and sort of talking with a lot of hedge funds in New York. Uh, and, you know, everyone was like, mining, meh, not interested. Uh, energy, meh, every once in a while. Industrials, sure, all the time, but um, you know, not not our bread and butter. Uh, and everyone sort of uh, said these are interesting ideas, but uh, we, you know, we're tech and biotech and healthcare and stuff like that. And so there really was only a couple of firms that were, say, some long only energy companies or long only energy funds. There was uh, a couple of long only mining firms up in Canada. Um, but nobody was really looking at what we've now come to call the real asset ecosystem, which is energy materials and industrials combined. They, they're, you know, a tightly interrelated group of businesses. Uh, industrials tend to consume the immediate outputs of the other two, and, and they tend to produce a lot of products that are consumed by the other two. Um, there's this tight interconnection, and when you throw in infrastructure, which is also a real asset we focus on, 
you know, those businesses form the foundation of, of society. So whatever comes after computers, TikToks, Twitters, et cetera, it all depends on this foundation. Uh, and so that's, that's really what we focus on the foundation. So let me, let me just pick at something you said that I, I thought was interesting. You said you were in Afghanistan and uh, you know, you, you had written a paper about it in, in, in college. Um, and you said you determined Afghanistan was not an environment conducive to investing. Like what, what, so when you look at like those kind of, I mean, I don't even know if you call them emerging markets, almost like these pioneer markets, right? Like just on the outer edge of like, uh, like the, even the emerging economies, like what, what are you looking for? And like, so what about Afghanistan? If you can just like maybe boil it down to a, like a, a few, like, you know, uh, principles, but like, what, what are you saying like about Afghanistan? It's like, that's really not investable. And then what would you look for in a economy like that, that would be like, maybe that is investable? Yeah. So one of the things we focus a lot on is this concept of sustainability. Now, usually when people talk about sustainability, they say, yes, we invest in sustainable companies and then they move on. My opinion, every time someone says that, you, sh you should raise your hand and say, wait a second. When you say sustainable, what do you mean? Because okay. that's a big concept. It's a big term. Sure. And so sure. from our perspective, you know, it, it's two things. And, and uh, if someone said to me it's three or four or five things, there are other ways of looking at this. But at a minimum, there are two variables here. One is the economics and one is the environment at a minimum. Okay. You could also throw in some other ones. But sustainable economics from a business perspective would be something like a business that is self-financed, right? So it doesn't have necessary recourse to capital markets to continue its operations. It can, you know, look, maybe at a time it needs to borrow money for a merger or an acquisition, okay, that, that's different. But the business itself can run on the cash flow it produces. It yeah, is, it's just generating cash it, flow, it's yeah. generating profits, it can sustain itself. Yeah. The other side is the environmental component of it. Um, and you know, from our perspective, how we evaluate it is whether we think a company can continue to operate in whatever likely environmental regulatory environment comes down the pipeline in the next 10 years. Basically, they can continue to do what they're doing without a significant impact from regulatory change. You could look at it in different ways. That's a very functional way for us to deploy the, the term. Okay. So when you go to a place like Afghanistan or you go to uh, any number of other emerging economies, one of the critical questions you're asking is, can one build a sustainable environmental and economic economy and society on this plot of land? In the case of Afghanistan, you know, you, you so what, what, would, what would sustainability start with? Well, sustainability would start with one of two things. It would start with either the ability to produce enough food that you can feed yourself or the ability to produce some product on a continuous basis with enough margin in it such that you can import all your food. The second of those two is, is not quite as sustainable as the first, but in the case of Afghanistan, they, they don't really have either. Okay. Um, so... How do you even get an economy started when the best they can do is subsistence farming? Uh, and uh, even that, they struggle to feed themselves. And, and a function, but you know, that is in some regards a direct function of the land. 
right? They, they don't have, it's not terribly great land to grow things in. Um, look, they've got some resources and amusingly enough, uh, the Chinese just cut a deal with the Taliban to pump oil. I don't remember how much it is. Uh, it's a modest sum. Um, I, I would short it. If, if that was a company and I could short it, I would, because that, you know, yeah. sure. the logistical issues are the other problem. So you look at a place like Afghanistan and you say, well, so, so the DOD wrote a report before I arrived there that said there's a trillion dollars of minerals in the ground. Minerals in the ground is great. Very useful to know. I'm glad I know that. But of course, the difference between minerals in the ground and monetization is a sustainable mining firm. (laughs) And uh, a sustainable mining firm needs to be able to export its product to market at a reasonable cost. Afghanistan is one of the few landlocked countries in the world. And we've got Iran on one side. We've got Pakistan on the other We've got a mess of other stands to the north, and then actually, technically, you have Pakistan to the south also. Not um, ideal. Not ideal. Not <laughs> ideal. Getting uh, raw material out. Yeah, getting raw material out. There is a teeny, itty-bitty little corridor that you could take into China, but then you're dropping yourself off on the, the far, uh, the, the far uh, western edge of China, and of course, everything is on the right. eastern edge. Pakistan, it's getting over mountains. It's quite, uh, it's beautiful, but it's very mountainous. And then of course, Iran, it's just not friendly to anyone. If Iran was a friendly country, things might change. Um, I, I, I recognize that and I would, you know, I, uh, I would love to go back to Afghanistan and, um, you know, I hope that massive capital survives another uh, 20 years. And um, I've got enough money that uh, made by that point, Iran will be friendly and I can go back to Afghanistan and uh, maybe uh, try to help um, by building building some mines or something. But um, until Iran is a friendly country, it's it's tough. Sure, sure. I want to like kind of go out of order in what I laid out to you for our conversation because like... It uh, doesn't matter. It's good. Yeah. Uh, it seems like what you invest in, it has a very cyclical nature. Mm-hmm. And like, uh, like, like I was explaining to you a little bit, like at some investing, we, we try to focus more on just like very long-term things. So like um, what, what I would, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, what you're probably doing is not long-term buy and hold investing. So how do you, if, if I'm, if, if that's, if that's wrong, correct me, but like, how do you like time cycles for that? Like, how do you time entries and exits into positions uh, how do you say like, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, how do you say like, okay, like uh, the environment for energy or copper or nickel is good right now. We think prices are going to go up. So we want to invest in, you know, companies that mine those resources or drill for those resources or say that those are bad and we want to maybe short companies that are in those resources. How do you, how do you time the cycles for these companies? Yeah. So I think that, um, So our average investment is sort of three to five years. So it's not short. Yeah, it's not short. No, it's, it's, but it's not necessarily we, I would be, and we've had some investments go seven, seven years, eight years. Um, but, but you're right. They're not, they're not buy and hold. They're not compounders in the idea of sort of 
they all have high opportunities to reinvest capital at high rates of return. Um, you know, sometimes they do if they have a new deposit or if it's a mine with a new deposit, but mostly they don't. Um, so what I would say is, so the, the buy and hold mindset, okay, what, what you're trying to do, at least as I understand it and have a deployed it, let's say in my personal account, sure, is buy good things. Okay, right. I try to buy a company. I'm willing to pay a reasonable price. It doesn't need to be in the dirt because it's got reasonable compounding potential going forward. So I'm trying to buy good things. Okay. We try to buy things well. Okay. So what's the difference? The difference is with your mindset, you immediately went to, okay, uh, there's a, there's a cycle and, and you are correct in noting that sort of because of that cycle, there's a window of time where these companies make a lot of money. And with that buy and hold mindset, you want to be invested at that time. Sure. But when we try to buy things well, there's a different mindset or a different approach. Take. The question is not, uh, are we going to buy and own this company when it is a good thing? It's more a question of the nature of the mispricing. So we could buy a bad company that was terribly mispriced. Um, now, that's not usually what we do, but, but that's sort of the, the focus is more on the mispricing and buying things at a good price. Right? And so what that means is that with, with uh, oil, natural gas, mining firms, it's not about being invested such that you capture that period of time when they're making a bunch of profits because of the cycle, but rather capturing capital appreciation as a result of a catalyst uh, that is company driven, that is separate from and different from the commodity cycle. So the example, uh, the, the good best example, the simplest example is a single asset mining firm. Okay, they have one asset. They've entered a period of building, okay? And they're building, and, and because they're building, and, and you know it's operational risk in some country, let's call it, uh, I don't know, the Democratic Republic of Congo, everybody gets out. They, but, but what's actually happened? They're building an asset, they financed it, they permitted it, they're moving it towards production. And so as they take steps towards production, the risk that they don't turn on that asset actually decreases. And so there's a period of time where you enter and you buy it well, you buy it cheaply. And when they turn on the asset, if let's say it's a copper asset, let's say copper's running against them. Okay, so we bought it and it's trading at 0.3 of NAV. Copper's running against them. They turn on the mine catalyst. That NAV, it's going to go from trading at 0.3 to 0.8 of NAV. Okay, so this is a good return. Now, if the yeah, copper yeah, 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 moving sure. with us, it'll go to 1.2 of NAV. Okay, so we found that there are situations, basically, especially if you just focus on company-level catalysts that are sufficient to overwhelm commodity price impacts that you can invest on the basis of companies. So rather than investing in the commodity cycle, we're investing in companies that are catalyst-driven that happen to produce commodities. If there's a commodity tailwind, 
you know, it rises further and faster. If there isn't a commodity tailwind, it doesn't rise as much, but it'll still rise because the catalyst is sufficient to drive the stock price higher. So like what I find interesting is like, so I would have assumed going into this conversation, you would have looked at like, say, and I'm just picking any random, but like copper and say, copper's low or the supply's tight, the demand's going to go up, whatever the case is. We think copper prices are going to go up this year. Let's let's buy a lot of co- companies that are in copper. Mm-hmm. And you're saying that's not what, you, again, please correct me if I'm wrong, but that's not what you do. You're looking for like specific company catalysts, like for that copper mine in, in a, I don't even know where copper's mine, but like in Congo yeah. or in a, you know um, an emerging economy yeah. somewhere probably or wherever it is. Uh, no, you're yeah. looking for that copper mine and saying, okay, right now the, you know, it's, it's trading like what we believe is it's very cheap for its long-term net asset value. Let's get into it now. And as it starts producing, it'll, you know, inflate to basically go back to its net asset value. And we're going to hold on to it for that period of time. So you're looking for like specific times in these specific companies. And you're not looking at like, say the bigger copper prices this year are going to go up. So let's get into copper companies picture. Is that, yeah. is that correct? No, that, that's very much correct. Now, I mean, we're cognizant of commodity prices. We don't, you know, look, we do invest in commodity producers. We can't ignore that in entirety. But what I think the big difference is, and this is not my phrase, this, I heard this somewhere and I don't remember where, uh, so someone else deserves credit for this. But what you just described, in, in our opinion, is sort of an approach that we characterize as uh, a, what often happens is timid bets on a bold forecast. So to your point, they say, copper's going to eight. What should I do? Up 2% in Freeport McMoran, up 2% in Southern Copper Company, up 2% right. in Rio Tinto, et cetera. And right. so there, basically, what you're doing is you're, you're, you've made a macro commodity price forecast that you're then choosing to execute that idea via equities. Now, I think that part of of investing well is not only having a good idea, but figuring out what is the best and most efficient way to execute that idea with sort of the, 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 the menagerie of financial products that are available. Now, if you think copper is going to eight and you've done all this work on copper prices, it's not clear to me why you then go into equities. Why not go into futures and actually execute the idea directly? The idea is about copper prices. Why not execute it directly? Um, Now, the opposite approach is, is how we think about our approach, which is a bold bet on a timid forecast. Yeah, I don't know where copper is going. I haven't got any idea. I'm usually, my track record on commodity price prediction is I'm decent with the trend. Okay. Directionality. Uh, but like, how high? No idea. Timeline? Meh. Meh. Directionality over a long term? Pretty, pretty good. So oh, we'd sorry. much rather buy a junior for whom turning on the mine doubles the price regardless of what copper is doing than you know that spread of copper bets in a bunch of copper majors so now when you're figuring the 
net asset value of a, of a mine, or you're looking at like the future cash flows that the mine might produce. Mm-hmm. How do you know, like, how do you factor what the price of copper will be, I guess, in your projections? Like you just said, like, I don't know. I don't know what the price of copper will be. So how does that, do you just come up with like a bear case, base case, bull case kind of scenario, or just figure we believe it'll be in this range or like, how do you, so, you know, if so, you don't so, know what the price of copper will be, how do you yeah. figure so what that out? We do, <clears throat> we're always told to think probabilistically, right? All of us are told to think probabilistically. Um, and so we take that quite serious. And so what we do is in the case of a mine, Okay. We will lay out, you know, the the uh, lay out a, a DCF, a model. It's a project, right? So it's it's got capex. Duh, 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 so we lay out a DCF. Uh, DCF for a mine is very easy to lay out. Um, and then uh, we will take, say, usually we do something like, uh, what was the copper high over the last two years? What uh, is the copper low over the last decade? And what's the average over the last decade? We'll run the DCF at each of those. Then we get our singular price produced from those DCFs. Now we've got three of them, let's say. One at that, uh, that high over the last two years, one at the average, and one at the 10-year the low or something. And we'll say, so we've got confidence in the trend that it's up. The supply situation looks bad. Demand looks good. We'll put 50% probability on the base case, 25% on the high, and 25% on the low. Then we'll do a probability weighted sort of value. And so we've taken into account all three of those cases, and that's our target price. Now, over time, those probabilities may reweight themselves. Um, as we own it. And as new information comes out, we may adjust those probabilities. Um, But that's sort of how we approach it. We are making an effort at all times to bet on a spread of possible outcomes, as opposed to picking a singular commodity price and betting precisely on that. That that makes, that makes a lot of sense. So, and uh, it makes a lot of sense too to look at a more granular level, uh, like for these co- company-specific catalysts, and say, trying to predict what copper prices will be in a year, and then trying to make, as you described it, like timid bets on a bold prediction. Yeah. Uh, let's shift to energy. Uh, you know, in 2022, uh, a lot of the stocks I was in did not do well. And when you look at the best performing stocks of the S&P 500 um, of the of the last year, it was dominated by like the legacy oil companies such as Occidental Petroleum, Hess, ExxonMobil, Marathon, Valero, like, right, they just had a, a great year after a lot of years of down uh, performance. Um, you know, yet going into the year, like, uh, I think a lot of people, especially forward-looking investors, considered oil kind of like this dying sector not that it's going away tomorrow but like you know it's a slowing dying sector because the world is shifting to green energy and we're gonna have electric vehicles and cleaner sources of power so after energy's run up last year like i mean are you interested in any oil stocks now are you you know do you how do you think energy looks for 2023 yeah um so from my perspective so first of all, I would just 
I would divide energy, right? Okay. We're talking, let's talk oil first. Or, okay. Or let's focus on oil because I think that's that's what you were sort of focusing on. Um, I think oil is the most difficult commodity to think about the price going forward. It's all right. Uh, it's the one with like the most variables. I mean, they probably all technically have the same number of variables at play, but it's the one that seems like it's got the most variables at play. It's also sure. the commodity with the largest paper market relative. Uh, I don't know if it's largest paper market relative to the size of the the actual uh, commodity traded market, but uh, it definitely has the largest sort of just aggregate paper market. So financial activity tends to um, can move prices uh, more in the oil market than uh, it can in some other commodities, which might be one reason why we like metals more than than oil and natural gas. But so uh, back to your question. So I think um, if I remember correctly, and, and I'm probably slightly off on this, but I think actually 2021 and 2022 energy was uh, obviously last year energy was was the best performer. I think in 2021 it was also one of the top performers. Yeah, I think that that's probably right. Um, if you look at say some broad U.S. indices, uh, so two years in a row, just from a statistical perspective, without any sort of thought process around what we're actually talking about, uh, two years in a row, and then a third year in a row of outperformance relative to the market uh, is a statistically uncommon sort of event. Now. That's just a factoid to keep in mind. The sure. details are what matter. From our perspective, I think oil is in a particularly tricky place. And the reason I think it's in a bit of a tricky place is on the long term, okay, the supply situation is quite bad. There's been a significant lack of investment. As a result, in part, of what you noted, the, the sort of idea that it's an old and dead industry and dying industry, okay? And so as a result, investors have come to them and said, look, we can put money in, in uh, Twitter or, or Facebook and get this rip-roaring return. You guys need to give us something. And so the oil companies have mostly said, okay, well, we're gonna return as much as possible to you and not invest, okay? We're gonna sweat our assets for cash flow and then return it all to you. So they haven't reinvested. Okay, so over some long-term period of time, the supply situation is quite dire. And it's quite dire regardless almost of what you think about a transition to a low-carbon economy because the speed of that transition, at least again in our opinion, and we've written about this recently, is vastly overstated. This concept of 2050 or say, you know, everyone... Uh, you see a lot of, uh, we're not going to sell oil, uh, internal combustion engine cars in California after 2035, right? There are some serious sequencing issues here in terms of availability of resources, production of EVs, et cetera. Okay. This, this trend or this, this transition 2050, vastly overstated goal. And let okay. me just, so let me just throw in a quick fact from one of your papers. Yeah. Uh, like, I don't know if you personally authored it or your, or your team, but, uh, it said fossil fuels currently supply supply 83% of the world's commercial energy. This compares to 86% in 2002, a minuscule decline of 3% in 20 plus years. Uh, so like even, you know, um, even I, I was surprised by that. And, and, and I'm not a guy who thinks like oil is going away anytime soon, but I was still surprised that it just declined three percentage points in, you know, almost 20 years. Yeah. 
it's, um, you know, look, the growth in renewables has been spectacular, right? It's been exponential. Um, but it's a big globe. <laughs> and we use a sure. lot of energy. Right. Um, and so, you know, and I am not, I, I'm a believer in the science behind climate change. Um, but uh, I do think that the science behind climate change doesn't tell us how to address climate change. It tells us technically how to do it, right? Technically, we can't release more carbon. That, that's very technical. That's where the science ends, though. Right. right? After that, it's a it's a bit more of a discussion. It's a policy conversation. It's an economic conversation. How do we address this issue? The devils uh, are in the details. Yeah, the devil's in the details for sure. Um, and uh, you know, the narrative and story that's been told about the transition, um, I think over you know, 20, where, where are we now? We're in 2022, 2022 to 2075, 2100. That seems reasonable to me. Sure. Um, you know, what people, I think, I think where people struggle or, or where, where there's a bit of a blind spot for, for a lot of the narrative um, is this idea, okay, we're going to change the utilities. They're all going to be renewables. We're going to get rid of our internal combustion engine. The problem is solved. Well, the reality is uh, and I got I got to update my numbers here. You're going to be slightly off, but you know, at best, absolute absolute best, that addresses you know like forty percent of emissions globally or something. Um, that does not address. Now there's some bleed because utilities, you know, power thing, you know, but um, you know, one of the one of the largest sources of emissions is agriculture, is feeding ourselves, and. That's that's a that's an oil game, uh, oil and natural gas game, right? It's oil to power tractors, uh, it's natural gas for fertilizers, it's you know energy. Uh, food is just energy that's been turned into a form that we can eat to power ourselves. Um, and so what's what's challenging with a lot of this uh, is if I came to you and I said um, we need to be carbon free. Uh, but our food is all produced by oil. Your immediate uh, and and uh, we we've got to get rid of the carbon emissions from the food, and we've got to get rid of the carbon emissions from the energy. Your response or the the logical response would be, okay, well, first let's figure out how to get the carbon out of the food. Sure. And then we'll figure out how to get the carbon out of the utility system. Right. Right. We've sort of reversed this one. You said we're going to get rid of the carbon over here on the energy side. The food be damned. Right, right. And you're sort of like, okay, well, that's going to be a problem. Um, uh, and you know, uh, I don't know where I was going with this, but but there's this giant sequencing issue. No. So let's let's continue on that note. Like, um, and I've heard you express your views on ESG before, uh, but like, so. ESG, like, and it, it, it's almost always like, or it seems like um, from, from someone who doesn't look at ESG too much when I make my investments, it's like buy these asset light businesses that don't have much of a carbon footprint. Yeah. And now we can uh, pat ourselves on the back and say, we're investing in clean companies. Yeah. And um I don't think you subscribe to that view, though, in that there might be a more, especially for the E and ESG, there might be a more 
uh, holistic or more realistic approach to that. So why don't you just kind of explain like how, how you approach that? So I think that it's, um, look, if you're someone like BlackRock, okay, and you're not an active investor, you are a retail investor, you're looking for someplace to put your capital, uh, and you have concerns about the environment, how you service that audience, it, it is a challenge, okay? Sure, I mean, it's, it's like BlackRock, right. they've, they've got a, tr they've got trillions of dollars. I, I don't know what they do, okay? So the, the advent of the ESG ETF, I, I don't think we should fault anyone for that. And I don't think it's necessarily like, you get some people out there who just think this is like an egregious idea that, that borders on being in somehow, in some way, shape or form like evil uh, or immoral because we're going to, uh, deny the 2 billion people who live in Africa and, and, and Asia an opportunity to develop. Um, I, I don't quite subscribe to that, but what I do subscribe to is the idea that ESG is not exactly what it's being marketed as. So if you buy ESG, an ESG fund, because you just don't want to be part of the problem, ESG, bill, ESG probably somehow fits that bill. Right, it's low carbon emissions, as you said. They just pick companies that have no emissions in the first place. Right. Uh, if, on the other hand, you want to contribute your capital to companies that are solutions oriented and forward looking, you have to think differently. Okay, because you can't decarbonize an economy by simply regressing to just businesses that produce no carbon. Sure. As already mentioned, there are businesses that produce critical economic goods, and those critical economic goods must be produced. And at the moment, the only way we know how to produce them is in a carbon, let's call it carbon medium to carbon heavy way. Um, so we articulate a strategy that's based more on uh, investing in solutions-oriented companies. And we think about them as either companies that enable a transition to a low carbon economy, and they would be people like a copper miner, okay, we need lots of copper for EVs, you need lots of copper for the grid, you need lots of copper for all kinds of different use, use cases, okay, or Vestas wind turbines or, or Siemens Energy, you know, they produce the equipment that, that facilitates a transition. Then there are companies that sell that are transitioning firms, okay, so uh, steel, we still need steel, still need cement, like everyone wants a house, everyone, you know, we, we need to build buildings, okay? So we need to come up with new ways of producing those goods. And so there are companies out there who have sat down. One of the most interesting parts about this is a lot of those businesses, right? Chemical businesses, steels. Cement businesses, their business models haven't changed. Maybe there are some details, right? Um, but the management teams are now sitting down, they're in hard science activities, engaged in research and development for new ways of producing their product that will create new business models. Okay? So those are the types of businesses we want to invest in. Now, at the moment, they have a heavy carbon footprint. But over time, that carbon footprint will go away as they invest and transition to new ways of doing things. Now, there are going to be some companies and some businesses where we just never figure out a new way of doing it, perhaps. Like there are probably some chemicals. Chemicals, of course, are, are the great example, right? All the chemicals we use are basically all- Petroleum-based, right? Yeah. Okay. There are probably some weird chemicals 
and maybe not even some weird chemicals. There might be widespread use chemicals that we just never figure out another way of doing. Um, you know, those companies still need to be invested in. Um, and there's still going to be profits to be made there. Uh, so has to take it. You have to take a balanced approach uh, and you've got to not part of the issue or and invest in the ESG fund um, and just sort of not contributing, if you will, or you want to be investing in companies that are solutions oriented. Now, I can't critique either approach. Um, uh, if, if you make a decision that that's what you want, but at least from my perspective, I'd rather be solutions oriented. Um, I, I also think the opportunity set is bigger there. So let's let's talk about maybe that opportunity set. Um, we have a mutual friend, Bill Brewster, and he had, he was talking about the Inflation Reduction Act. And uh, I asked him to come on and talk about it. He goes, you know, I mean, I can come on, but I'm just a guy talking about it. He goes, the guy you need to talk to is Will Thompson. And that's kind of what led me to reach out to you. Um, so the Inflation Reduction Act, just so for viewers, because I didn't know this either, like it was signed into law last August. And it might have more in it about green energy than it does inflation, despite its name. Um, it includes provisions for, I think, uh, almost $400 billion in energy and climate related initiatives, uh, maybe making it like one of the more significant environmental focused bills Congress has passed. Um, so, but let's tackle this from like an investor's perspective. Like what, what can investors take away from this bill? And is there opportunities there? So there are opportunities, but we've got to be sort of careful. Okay, so the bill, I would divide it into sort of two components. One would be uh, various different support for uh, energy, the energy system, if you will, that is, let's call it transformative, and another that is supportive. Okay, so the supportive side would be, um, you know, tax credits for solar and wind. They existed, but now they're they've improved them and they've locked them up for a longer period of times. Uh, there's um, electric vehicle uh, credits. Um, there's residential clean energy related tax credits. Uh, there's some stuff for low emissions fuel, stuff like that. So it, it, it's a lot of extension of things that have already been in place and, and some of those, those say tax credits around the edges. Uh, then there's the what they hope, policymakers hope are slightly more transformative parts about it, specifically things around say uh, investment tax credits for battery storage, um, green hydrogen, uh, energy efficiency solutions for commercial buildings, um, uh, carbon capture stuff. Okay, so there are the, these these two big buckets, if you will. Now, I think that the transformative stuff you're going to end up if you want to find companies that are going to benefit from that component. You end up with earlier stage companies. This is especially true of stuff like green hydrogen, right? Green hydrogen. I think has very few use cases, but it does have a couple of good ones. Um, but the company businesses, the, the sort of industry, if you will, the value chain is very, very new, very young companies. The companies are going to be having, uh, going to have high rates of growth, um, mostly because they're starting on a very small footprint. Um, and the, uh, 
figuring out the key, the key will be to figure out whether these companies are actually making money on a, say, a unit basis, or if they're not making any money and they're just collecting a government rent. Um, I suspect that you're going to have a lot of both. Sure. That's just sort of the way it works out. Um, on the other side, you have the supportive ones or the support of the, the solar, the wind, the tax credits, things like that. Stuff that literally reduces the cost, basically, of installing installing solar and wind and, and things like that. Uh, you actually run, interestingly enough, into a very similar problem, which is it's very hard to tell whether a lot of these companies can actually make any money. And this is especially true in solar and wind equipment manufacturers. This is where we, we are, solar and wind absolutely have a place in our energy system. What we don't have is a role as the universal source of energy. Sure. So solar in Nevada makes sense. Solar in Maine does not. And so the so that that's a challenge, okay? But then all these equipment manufacturers that come before that question is even asked, with the price of electricity being driven down by solar and wind so much, the margin that's available to these equipment manufacturers is quite limited. And so what we find when we look at the value chains for the equipment manufacturers is that, you know, in the case of say solar panels in China, we looked recently and from the manufacturer of polysilicon to the end panel, there was basically like four cents available in margin. And I don't remember, I think it, it's not on a panel basis, it's on like a kilogram basis or something. I, I don't remember which, but we're not talking about a bunch of it, a bunch of industries not sharing a lot of margin here. Um, of the four companies that you can sort of think about it as there being four companies in that stack, of the four companies in that stack, only one of them made money. The rest of them lost money. And so that one company actually made seven cents and the rest of the companies lost money. How, how you come to gotcha. the top of rule of four cents, okay? So, so there's, there's this question about whether uh, at electricity prices where they currently stand, which in some regards determine the profit pool, uh, whether these equipment manufacturers can even make money. Now, the IRA bill incentivizes bringing a lot of that production to the United States domestically. In China, and they did so on government subsidized coal power. Right. Bring it here to the United States. I, uh, I'm, I'm not certain that, um, you know, you're even going to get that four cents. My sure. dad, you have a much higher labor costs and much higher, maybe energy cost and everything else. If you're not using government subsidized power. Yeah. So I do think that what we're going to see a lot of is if a company trades on its revenue, say top line growth, and you're a trader, let's say, then there's opportunity because those companies will probably do well on, you know, if they trade on revenue. But from an economic perspective, I don't think they're going to be making money. So if you want to buy as an investor and hold them for three to five years, as we like to do, uh, with some sort of catalyst. Um, and at the very least, we don't want a business that is just being run on government rents. 
I don't think there's going to be a lot of opportunities uh, on the the equipment side of things. Sure. Uh, utility companies, you know, utilities manage to deploy these assets profitably, but you know, utilities have the return that they do, um, uh, which you know sometimes can be good, but generally speaking, utilities are not you know punchy investments. Um, right. In the past two years, some of them have have run quite far, uh, but. You know, again, you do have to separate out the the government tax credit, and and I don't think they'd run as far as they have if you subtracted that out. The earnings are not as robust absent those credits. And what about a company like Simon's Energy? Does a company like that have an opportunity here? Yeah, so we we do like Siemens Energy, um, and we do like businesses like Siemens Energy, which sort of cover the full energy value chain, if you will, from generation, traditional generation to renewables and everything in between. Siemens is kind of like a one-stop shop. Let's say you run an electrical grid. You could come to Siemens and say, I've got a natural gas plant, I've got renewables, uh, and I've got uh, I've, I've got some space for solar and I've got some space for wind. Build it for me. Siemens will build you the entire grid. They'll build the uh, uh, the natural gas uh, generator. They're the largest manufacturer of uh, steam uh, of, of turbines in the world, the second largest of natural gas turbines, the largest of steam turbines. Okay, so, so they'll build the turbine for you. They have a, a lock on a lot of grid technology. Um, they don't make wires, but they make everything else that powers the grid, if you will, or that the grid runs on. They've got a bunch of hydrogen technology they own now. They've brought in-house the entirety of Siemens Gamesa, so they do uh, manufacture wind turbines. So there's this sort of one-stop shop that can address all your issues. And it happens to be in Europe, so it got smacked. And it happens to be a spinoff, and it was the stub that nobody wanted, so it got smacked there. So right now you've got, um, I would say, Siemens Energy, you know, conventional generation, renewables, you've got demand growth for energy, decarbonization, digitization, decentralization, any of those big themes, they cover that. Uh, And it's, you know, deeply discounted. Um, I do think that Siemens, though, could be something you want to buy and hold longer term, right? That type of business uh, can be viewed is not not so much a project business, right? It's a going concern business. Right. Um, So there is a potential for compounding over the long term. So I don't want to, we're, we're running up on time and I don't want to like uh, keep you. So what, I was, again, just looking through like the, the papers you have made publicly available on your website. There's a lot of them for people to check out. Um, but one that caught my eye was Centaurus Metals. So this is an Australian listed mining exploration company, which is doing a nickel project in Brazil. And so this is the kind of thing I find fascinating because it's like, how, how do you even find something like this? So if you could maybe just like kind of one, how do you find something like this? And then two, like maybe just walk us through the investment case for Centaurus Metals real quick, because I think uh, listeners will find it like uh, as fascinating as I did. Yeah. So Centaurus, how did we find it? Um, got any idea how we found it. Um, but uh, in general, um, we find these 
sleepy out of the way well not necessarily sleepy, but but out of the way companies mostly because i mean it's the universe we focus on right so look our universe is uh if you do it at the biggest level it's like five thousand companies uh with market caps greater than 200 million of that i don't know uh a thousand of them or something are mining firms and then we focus on a very specific sort of, mostly focus on a very specific segment of mining firms, which is to say mining firms that have a deposit that they are in the process of building, okay? We don't, you know, we're not geologists, so we don't invest in a company that say just has a geologist and is looking for a deposit, okay? Deposits got to be there. There's got to be technical docs that we can assess, operational docs. And, you know, we have to have an expectation that they're turning on the mine in, say, the next five years. Okay, so, so sort of make a cut that way. And the number of companies that are in that window, if you will, it's volatile. It changes every year. But you reduce the number of companies quite quickly. And then you can cycle through some uh pretty easily looking at, say, the commodity price upon which they've uh, articulated their investment case. And a lot of times what we see is companies that have articulated their investment case on a commodity price that is uh, quite high, basically the way to put it. Okay. Um, and you know maybe the commodity, whatever it has, is, has been there recently. Uh, but it isn't necessarily, you know, it, it's like a 10 year high, right? So, so you're like, eh, guys, I, I, you know, what does your commodity case look like at the 10 year low or sure. middle? Sure. So we can get rid of a lot of companies that way. We follow a lot of companies in the mining space, and uh, most of them are, are just not followed by anyone. So, but I think that, you know, in the case of Centaurus Metals, um, they have, as you noted, a, a, what's called a nickel sulfide project in Brazil. Um, and the nickel sulfide market uh, is interesting because nickel sulfide is, there's sort of where there's two classes of nickel. There's class one nickel and class two nickel. Class two nickel you usually use in steel. Class one nickel is what they need for batteries. So if there's an argument to be made that EVs are going to grow and battery demand is going to grow, which seems to be the case, uh, we need more nickel sulfide. And so Centaurus has um, one of uh, the sort of highest grade, best nickel sulfide deposits um, in the world. Uh, and so that's sort of how we, we came to it and, and part of what we think is so interesting about this project. Um, they're a couple of years away from production. Uh, so they sort of are in that orphan period where they're being ignored, nobody's looking at them. Uh, they've got a decent management team that appears very capable of turning on this asset with uh, any of these project sort of focused companies. You've gotta be laser focused on whether you think management is capable of executing the plan they say they're going to, because that's the bet you're making. It's not a nickel bet, it's a bet on their ability to execute. Um, and we have sort of high conviction that they can do that. So, All right, Will, where can uh, where can listeners find out more about you in Massive Capital if they're interested? Um, so our website uh, is massivecap.com. Um, we uh, 
produce a lot of research, all of which, mostly all of which is public, some of which we retain for our investors, but most of it is, is freely distributed. Uh, we got a mailing list. Um, I'm on Twitter, although my participation goes sort of back and forth. Sometimes I'm active, sometimes I'm not. So, um, but those are, those are a couple of places you can find us. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I'm Matthew Cochran, a lead advisor at 7investing, where it is our mission to empower you to invest in your future. If you enjoyed this podcast or if you watched it on YouTube, feel free to subscribe or leave us a review. Have a great day, everyone. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.